Give ear to the word of God, Revelation chapter eight or chapter two, verses eight through eleven. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you've given us your holy word, your scriptures that are inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, all these things that you've given them to us as a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We thank you that here in, our, in the pages of your book, we, we see our sin, we see the the way of life uh, through through Christ, by faith in him. Uh, we ask once again that you would teach us this morning, give us, work in us by your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Give us an ear that we might hear what the spirit says here in this text to the churches, even to our church today. Uh, work in us by your spirit again that we might be uh, doers of your word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. For we ask all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we're looking this morning at the, the second of the seven letters to the seven churches. We're looking at the letter uh, to the angel or the messenger of the church in the city of Smyrna. Uh, last Sunday we saw in the first letter, remember the first letter to the church in Ephesus, we saw that that church had a lot going for it. A lot of what Jesus says to that church in commending them uh, was, it consisted of things that we would be, in the best sense of the word, proud to be able to say of our own church or any any church and yet, what does he say? He said he has something against them, right? He had something against them, and it was that in verse 4, they, they had left their first love, or the love they had at first. Now, the church in Smyrna, uh, however, receives no word of rebuke from the Lord. God, the Lord Jesus doesn't have any kind of rebuke or correction or anything like that to the, the church in Smyrna. The problem that, that this church faced was not that their love had grown cold, but that persecution had gotten hot. It had heated up. They were facing some very difficult times. Now, the letter from the Lord to the church here in Smyrna, just like all those letters, all seven of them, is is directed not just to them, but to whom? It's directed to all the churches in every place and every time, which means it's directed to us as well. Even if we don't identify with every specific thing about it in our current condition, it's still addressed to us for our benefit. That's why it says in verse 11, and why it says in every one of the, all seven letters have this exact refrain in it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means it's supposed to perk our ears up. We're supposed to say this, this applies in some way to us now. It may apply in a more direct sense to us at some point in the future. And it also applies to the church in all kinds of places, as Christian even just prayed and mentioned, throughout the world now. Persecution is not some old ancient thing that the church used to have to deal with, uh, it still goes on today. And so while you and I, you know, we ourselves might not be presently, I, I shouldn't even say might not, uh, we, we, we are not presently experiencing the kind of violent persecution that the church in Smyrna was dealing with in her day, 
but there are a great many of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout much of the rest of the world who are. And people are still suffering the same kinds of things that the church in Smyrna dealt with. They're, they're suffering slander or blasphemy. They're suffering poverty for the faith. They're suffering imprisonment. And they're even suffering martyrdom for the sake of the name of, of Christ. And the fact that you and I are not presently experiencing those things, uh, frankly, is no guarantee that we won't ever. We are not immune or exempt because we're in America. No one, no one can, can hold themselves as if they were exempt from such things, although we, um, we would certainly like to, wouldn't we? We'd like to be able to say, we don't ever have to worry about that. I hope we don't, but we may sometime. And so this letter, this short letter to the church of Smyrna, should lead us not only to consider our suffering brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and to pray for them and support them in whatever way that we can, but it should also, frankly, lead us to prepare ourselves ahead of time should God in his good, wise, and perfect providence, so, so ordained that we might suffer similar things at some point ourselves. That's the way we should think of this text. Now, I think we should spend a little time, maybe uh, it might be necessary or helpful, to spend a little bit of time looking at what the Scripture says in other places about persecution, about God's people suffering persecution for the faith, for the name of, of Christ. Most of us, I think it's safe to say, have not suffered much for the name of Christ at all. And so we might come across a text like this and others and say, you know, kind of say to yourself, we wouldn't say it out loud, but say, you know, I, it's hard for me to identify with this letter. I don't know what it's like. At best, I've been made fun of or mocked. I've never, maybe you have never either, I've never been beaten for preaching. None of you have rushed the uh, pulpit. Uh, I've never been beaten for witnessing for Christ. I've never been imprisoned for witnessing for Christ. I'm guessing none of you have either. Maybe slander. Uh, I don't even think we've suffered poverty for the sake of the name of Christ. But, the, the, you know, we, we really shouldn't have that much of a difficulty identifying with this text or at least understanding its applicability to us. The church, uh, the scriptures bear much witness to the fact that the church will suffer affliction and persecution. The reality of persecution, the simple fact of it, is demonstrated in a, uh, in a multitude of passages in the Old and New Testaments. You'd be very hard-pressed to read your Bible straight through and not find yourself again and again and again seeing examples of God's people being afflicted uh, for their faith in the Lord and afflicted by, specifically by those who hate God and who hate his Christ and his people. Think of just a handful of, announced, of, of examples uh, of, of persecution. It starts back as far as Gen Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel, brothers, one brother killed the other. Why? Uh, he was persecuting uh, him for his love for God. He hated him. He, he, in fact, the New Testament says, why did he kill him? Because Esau was of the evil one and hated his brother. That was the reason he killed Jacob. Remember, remember or not Jacob, killed Abel. Remember why he killed him? They both offered sacrifices to God. Uh, Cain's was rejected and Abel's was accepted and rather than offering the right sacrifice that he, was, that he knew he should have done he wouldn't kill a lamb but he would kill his brother Esau likewise persecuted his brother Jacob Joseph's own flesh and blood his brothers sold him into slavery and some of them wanted to kill him instead of selling him into slavery Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites and treated them harshly Saul persecuted David wicked kings and others in leadership in Israel 
If you read through uh, the history of Israel, they persecuted and murdered the prophets of God to such a degree that you might know in the book of Acts, right before Stephen was about to be martyred himself for his testimony to Christ, this is what Stephen said to the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. He says, uh, this, is, this is influencing friends and uh, or, you know, gaining friends and influencing people. He says, you stiff-necked people, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's the Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, Who you, rece- uh, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Acts 7, verses 51 to 53. Tell us what you really mean, Stephen. I mean, which of the prophets didn't you guys kill? And then you killed, who, uh, as if that weren't enough, they murdered Christ himself when he did come. And then Stephen was martyred very soon after that. Likewise, in the New Testament, elsewhere, it would be utterly impossible to read, for instance, the four Gospels in the book of Acts without seeing examples over and over again of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles being harassed, opposed, persecuted, and even put to death by the enemies of Christ. It's, it's all through the Old and New Testament. Not only that, but we have so many historical examples uh, in the scriptures, and we also have the testimony of the rest of church history up until our very day. Today is uh, obviously, as we've said, is Reformation Sunday, and there's a lot of great things that you can read about and study about about the Reformation in the 16th century and what preceded and followed that. Um, but you, you couldn't read much about the Protestant Reformation without reading about a history of persecution against the Reformers, many of whom were, were put to death for their views, for their uh, their faith in Christ and their preaching of that of the simple gospel uh, of, of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone. Uh, ma- many of them who came before, during, and after were were imprisoned, were were mistreated, were even put to death for it. Many of these men in the Reformation were willing to die for the good news of the gospel of Christ, even for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And many of them sealed their testimony with their blood. It's hard for us to imagine that kind of a thing. We think of doctrine as kind of an academic thing. They didn't. And many of them laid down their lives for these truths, the truths of the gospel. We also have the clear teaching of Christ himself and his apostles on this subject. Uh, I I promise you Christians didn't know I was going to read this in the sermon when he read the text that he picked, but there's a reason he picked it. Uh, John 15, 18 to 21, Jesus himself says this, John 15, 18 to 21, If the world hates you, know that it hated it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Here it is. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would they will keep yours also. Uh, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Likewise, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul, who knew quite a bit about suffering and persecution for the faith, he writes this, very simple and to the point, he tells, this is Paul writing to Timothy, his, his son in the faith, his, his kind of young protege pastor. He says, indeed, all... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. 
It, it's into, our message is intolerable, and even your living in, in, in ever so slight fashion like Christ is intolerable because it reminds them of him. You remind the world in some way, shape, or form in how you speak and how you live and how you believe. You remind the world of Christ, and that's why the world hates you. That's why the world persecutes the church, the true church. In our text this morning, getting back to the text itself, we're, we're going to see at least three things, maybe more. We're going to see first the commendation of Christ. We're going to see that in all seven letters, really. But the commendation of Christ. Secondly, we're going to see the call of Christ, what he tells his church to do, how they were to respond to their persecution and, and danger they were in. And thirdly, the consolation or comfort of Christ. So the first thing is, the commendation of Christ to his church, to the church in Smyrna and all those like her. Um, just as he did in that previous letter to the church in, in Ephesus, here too he commends their faithfulness. Look at verses 8 through 9 where Jesus says this, To the angel, or the messenger, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You know, I think I mentioned last last time, uh, in each one of these letters, when he, there's, a, there's a definite structure to these letters. If you read all seven of them in one sitting, you'll see the same things kind of in the same order, popping up again and again. They're very short. You kind of have to unpack them, but each as short as they are, as short as this one is, it contains a lot within it. But in each one, he opens... Uh, by saying something about himself. And in most of these letters, he repeats something that was said in John's vision of Christ back in, in chapter 1. And the same goes uh, is true here. He points the church in these letters, when he first opens them, he points them to something about himself, something true about himself. Uh, and and why, why do you think that is? Why does Jesus point the church in Smyrna, for instance, to the fact uh, that, that he's the first and the last and the one who died and came to life, he's, he's showing us that our greatest comfort, our greatest encouragement and peace are always to be found first and foremost, not in some, you know, thing, not in some abstract notion, but of something in him himself. Our, our comfort and peace is to be found in Christ, even in time, maybe especially in time of persecution and in suffering. He reminds them that the one who is addressing them, the person speaking to them in this letter, is the first and the last. What does that mean? He's saying, among other things, he's Almighty God. The Son of God himself is the one who's addressing them, and also he mentions that he's the one who died and came to life. What else? What does that mean? What's he talking about? His death for our sins. He's telling them he's God, and he's telling them he's the, that he's their Redeemer, that he died for their sins and for ours. Notice then that if you think about that for a minute, the Lord Jesus is bringing comfort to his afflicted and suffering people by pointing them to both his divine nature and to his human nature. Sounds like theology, doesn't it? He wants them to understand who he is and understanding better who he is and remembering who he is and what he did is to bring them comfort in their time of persecution and suffering for his name. The great Puritan writer, sometimes called the father of English Puritanism, William Perkins, writes... Here is the foundation of all true comfort unto God's church and people in any misery or affliction, which stands in two points. Two points. First, that Christ is able to help them in any misery, either by freeing them quite from it, 
or easing them in it, seeing that he is God. In other words, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He can put a stop to persecution tomorrow if he wants to. He can he can stop persecution. He can ease them in it because he's all-powerful. He's God. He's the Son of God. Uh, the first and the last. So by saying the first and the last, he's saying, I'm God. Remember who's watching you. Remember who it is who's walking among the candlesticks, among the churches. It's God. I'm God. Secondly, Perkins writes, secondly, that as he is able, so he is willing and ready to help them, for he is man who took on him our nature, died for us, and rose again unto life to give us eternal life. This is the very scope or end for which Christ thus describes himself to this church that was in affliction. In other words, because he's God, almighty God, and because he is God in the flesh, the Messiah, God and truly God and truly man, who having died for our sins and risen again on the third day, he's both able to help and the church in their sufferings, even in our sufferings, can know he is willing to help. And he also knows what it's like when he says he died. He didn't just die, he was killed. He was killed by his enemies, just like some of his people are often put to death. The same way he's saying, I've been there, I've conquered death for you. Um, and I can and am able to and am willing to help. How Think about how practical, how comforting the true doctrine of the gospel really is or really should be to us. Don't think of it as just some dry, esoteric, uh, you know, trivial pursuit kind of knowledge. There's, there's real-life comfort to be found in the doctrine of the gospel. There's real-life comfort and, and practical things to take from the, to, the true doctrine of Christ's deity and his incarnation that's how it's meant to be. There's an old hymn. We're not singing it today. I thought about it, but uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What, what's Jesus pointing them to here? His glory, that he's God, and his grace. That's, that's to be found in, in him alone. Jesus points this suffering church to his glory and to his grace to comfort them, to his deity and his humanity to comfort them in time of trouble and persecution. Notice also that, once again, Jesus tells his church, just like he did in the first letter, he knows. He knows everything about them. He knows what their strengths, their weaknesses. He knows their, their sufferings. He knows everything that they're going through. He knows everything about them. Now, I know our first temptation is to think, you know, if he knows everything. Well, he knows everything. He's omniscient. God knows everything, right? Everything is, is an open book. Uh, to God. Now that's true, but it's not what he's really talking about here. It's talking about an intimate knowledge, a sympathetic knowledge of everything that they were going through. He's intimately acquainted with them in every way. And again, why do we know that? Because as that vision in chapter 1 says, he walks among or in the midst of his lampstands, his churches. He is really with them in every way. Uh, as he says in the end of, of Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, he says he's with us always, even to the end of the age. Well, that's what he's talking. He's not when he says I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not just talking about, as according to his divine nature, his bare omnipresence. Is there anywhere that God is not? No, not a trick question. Uh, but he's not talking about. He's he's talking about being with us. When you think about heaven, what do you think? What's what do you look for? What does Paul say to encourage each other with in First Thessalonians four? will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Well, God's with us now. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an intimate, firsthand 
It's, it's, it, he's with us forever, and we're with him forever in heaven. It's an intimate knowledge and presence with them. Notice he also tells them, I know your tribulation. He knows. He knows what they're going through. He's not unsympathetic towards them. He knows, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander or blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse verse 9. Here you're seeing him kind of describing the beginnings of this persecution and affliction that they were going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He mentions poverty. He mentions poverty first. There's four kinds of persecution or suffering in this in this short letter. And the first is poverty. You know, faithfulness to Christ as Lord came with a steep price in Smyrna. You know, it still does today. In some way, they were cut off from the regular business world of their neighbors in their time and place, which often involved pagan religion. Very often the pagan temples were kind of the marketplaces, and they, whether by their own refusal to go in or by their being ostracized, they were kept from taking part in a lot of things in, in, the, in the, what we would think of as the business world of their day. The religion of the state was very big in Smyrna. Emperor worship was at some point instituted uh, under the Romans in Smyrna. You can imagine people that won't say Caesar is Lord may have had a hard time with their business life, may have had a hard time making their ends meet and providing for their, their families in that kind of a situation. Notice that despite that outward poverty, and we shouldn't make light of that poverty, it was real poverty, uh, they were truly, what does Jesus say, they were truly rich. Jesus, the Lord of glory, says, you've got it all. You are, he doesn't, he doesn't say, you think you're poor, you know, you're not. He, he, he knows their poverty, but he also says, you're, you're rich. You might not realize you're rich, but you're rich. Now, did you know that the richest person in the world without Christ, now I won't say a name, I don't know, we don't know people's souls, but the richest person in the world that does not know Christ literally ought to be envious. Deadly, I mean, just green in the face, envious of the poorest, least known, most afflicted believer in the world. That's a literally true statement that an unbeliever would mock and laugh at. But the poorest unbeliever on the face of this earth, the most afflicted believer on the face of the earth, whether they be sitting in a prison somewhere for 20 years awaiting death, whether they have their, their necks in the gallows or whatever form of, of, of murder that they have to endure, uh, the richest man in the world that doesn't know the Lord should be jealous of that man and should want to change places with him, even on the gallows. Jesus says, you're rich. You're rich. Luke twelve twenty one. there the Lord Jesus speaks of those who lay up treasure for themselves on earth, but who are not, quote, rich toward God. There's riches and then there's riches. The believers at Smyrna were poor in the things of this world, but they were rich toward God. You know, many that, that still preach the prosperity, the so-called prosperity gospel, uh, they just don't know the Bible. And they don't know God. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you've got to just claim it, and I'll make you rich. Why are you guys struggling in poverty and affliction? He doesn't say anything of the sort. Matthew sixteen twenty six says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You could have literally everything. But if you don't know the Lord, you've got nothing. In Christ, believers have, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3, every spiritual blessing. We're not lacking anything. Every spiritual blessing. He also says in 1 Corinthians three twenty one that in Christ we have all things. All things are ours in Christ. 
We have God himself. If you're a Christian this morning, you have God himself as your portion. Remember the story of the promised land, the 12 tribes going in, and each tribe had its own allotted inheritance. What did the Levites have? Did they get land? Everybody else got land. The Levites got no land. Now, if you were a Levite, you might have said to yourself, wait, wait, time, you know, hold up, hold up. Something, something's missing here. What's the, what's the deal? Why don't we get a portion of the land? What was their portion? God and the service of God in the tabernacle and the temple. They had, who had the better portion? The Levites did. They may not have understood it, but that's what they should have realized. And so this morning I have to ask, uh, are you rich toward God? Ask yourself this. Are you rich toward God? You might be poor. You might not know how you're going to make your ends meet. That's a very real thing. But are you rich toward God? Are you trying to store up treasures for yourself on earth, which do not last and yet not laying up treasure for yourself in heaven? If you know the Lord, you're rich toward God. The second kind of affliction that Jesus mentions here in verse 9 is slander, literally, some translations, and this is a, a more literal way to put it, blasphemy. The believers in Smyrna were spoken ill of. They were probably accused of all kinds of terrible things that were not true. And this may have actually contributed to their to their poverty. You can imagine how that would hurt someone's business to be accused of all kinds of, of things, maybe, maybe even accused of sedition, of undermining Rome. And if you undermine Rome in their day, uh, all bets were off. Uh, we've seen in our own supposedly free country, even in recent days, a case where a Christian couple who were owners of a bakery were forced out of business for refusing to violate their conscience regarding the issue of homosexuality and so-called gay marriage. And what were they called? For holding to what the Bible says about, about morality, about marriage, they were called bigots, they were called hateful, all these things. Same kind of thing is probably what was happening in Smyrna. Nobody wants to do business with a bigot, with a hateful person. Were they hateful people? I've seen nothing uh, that would indicate that they were, but they were slandered and it cost them in many ways. We shouldn't be surprised if those in the world speak evil of us and accuse us of bad things, of wickedness to stir up trouble. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 11 to 12? He says, sounds so backwards to us. Blessed are you, blessed. Blessed are you when others revile you. Probably don't feel blessed, right? When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Has to be falsely, right? Uh, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You might know in Acts chapter 5, the apostles, when they were beaten and and, uh, jailed and let go, it says that they, in verse 41, they rejoiced, Quote, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It sounds backwards, doesn't it? They didn't just say, oh, well, they rejoiced. Why? That they were counted worthy. Who counted them worthy? Christ did. To let them share in his sufferings. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What name? The name of Christ. What was the source? What is the source of the persecution and slander that Jesus speaks of here in our text. Where, where does Jesus tell him it comes from in our text? He says it was the slander of what? Of, of, quote, of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These were unbelieving Jews, those who had rejected Christ and hated his followers. Remember, Paul himself used to be that way. He tried to destroy the church before Christ con- confronted him on the Damascus Road. 
Uh, and in doing so, in persecuting the people of Christ, the church, these unbelieving Jews showed, really, that, that they weren't really Jews at all. They were Jews by birth only. They, they were ethnically Jewish. Maybe by nationality they considered themselves Jewish, but they weren't, spiritually speaking, they weren't Jews at all. Paul in Romans 9, 6-8 says this, he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. What's he talking about? Paul's, Paul is saying, you know, if you're going to preach the gospel in the first century especially, uh, one of the things you're going to have to answer to people is, what's the deal with all, you know, why do most, why did most of Israel reject their Messiah? How, do you, how does that make any sense? And doesn't that mean that God's word had failed? God made all these big promises to Abraham. And you're, if go up, go outside, look at the night sky. If you can count the stars, if you can count the sands and the seashore, that's that's what your offspring is going to be, right? And so he he might have you know we we could look at that and say, well, it doesn't seem that way. They're not following Christ. How could that be? And Paul says this: It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel, that's Jacob. Uh, belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, and he quotes scripture, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Did you catch that? It's never been by physical birth. Nobody gets into the kingdom because they're born into a Jewish family back then, or, or even if they're born into a Christian family. It's all by uh, being a child of the promise and, and coming to faith in Christ. In fact, it's, it's believers in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile by birth, who are the real Jews and are the real fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Listen to Galatians 3.7. Paul says, It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you're a Christian, you are part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that his offspring would be so numerous as to be like the stars in the sky. Whether you're born Jewish or not, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, you're part of that promise that God made to Abraham. The unbelieving Jews who persecuted Christ himself and his church here are referred to, quote, as a synagogue of whom? Satan. You might know Jesus in confronting the Pharisees and scribes. He called them all kinds of things like this. John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers. Jesus says, you are of your father the devil. They were saying, we have Abraham as our father. He's like, no, no you don't. Your father's a lot different than Abraham. Your father is the devil, the evil one himself. And so what, what is the ultimate source of the persecution and slander that the church endures back then and even to our own day? Ultimately, where, where does it come from? It's satanic in origin. We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul says. The same is true throughout Scripture. The second thing I want us to look at is the call of Christ. What does Christ call his suffering and persecuted people, this church in Smyrna and elsewhere? What does he call us to do? Verse 10, he says, do not fear. How many times do you read that in the Bible? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do not fear. And notice notice the reason he gives them why they shouldn't fear. Or I should put it a different way. Notice what he doesn't say. What would we like him to say? Don't fear, because none of this stuff's going to happen. I'll just put my foot down and stop it all. 
You'll never have to have a you'll never stub your toe, you'll never have a bad day. He doesn't say that at all. He he doesn't tell them that he's not going to permit them to suffer persecution for his name. Quite the opposite. They were going to have to go through it and suffer, but they weren't to fear it. That's, if you're like me, you think that's a lot easier said than done. But he says, don't fear what you are about to suffer. He doesn't tell them they're not about to suffer it. He says, don't fear it. And notice again that Jesus points us to the satanic origin of that persecution. It was the devil who was going to cast some of them into prison. To be sure, the devil used people as he always does to do his dirty work, but ultimately it was the devil himself whose hatred for Christ, it was that that was behind the persecution that they suffered. And it's the same thing that's behind the persecution the church suffers wherever she suffers these things today. There Christ also says something that you might find odd. He says that their tribulation was going to last how long? Ten days. Easy peasy, right? Get your calendar out on the wall, start checking off the days. I remember uh, when I got out of the Navy, the days before I got out of the military, uh, you know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't touch me the last month. You couldn't make me mad. You couldn't give me a bad day if you tried because I had my calendar out and I had my Sharpie. And, uh, you know, whatever, it was the month of May 1993, and I was, X, there's Monday. It's like, it's like my kids do before Christmas. They, they have their, Ben has his calendar on his wall, and he's, X, X, there's only 10 days. There's only 9 days. I was, you know, when you get under 10 days, you call yourself a single-digit midget. I was, I was impervious to anything. You, I, if somebody said something bad to me, I'd say, nine days in a wake-up. Seven days in a wake-up. And I'll be out of this look, prison-looking uniform and be on my merry way. He says, ten days. You're almost a single-digit midget, church. Don't worry about it. Now, was he saying it was going to be a literal ten-day persecution? No. A lot of the numbers in Revelation are not meant to be taken in a literal fashion. They're meant to, to convey something. Ten just like I think seven is meant to, seven is supposed to be the number of perfection. Ten, I think, is just meant to show, in some ways, it's in comparison to eternity, a short time. It may feel like it's not a short time, but Jesus is saying, he's saying there's a limit, that he himself placed a limit on their suffering. It was only going to be for ten days. That number, I think, is symbolic, and it's meant to remind us that there's a limit to our sufferings. It's really only for a short time. A set period of time. It's as if, as one writer says, God has Satan on a leash. When, when, when I was a kid, I was terrified of big dogs. But, you know, if there was a dog loose, I wasn't going anywhere near it. But if the owner had it on a leash or behind a fence, it, it kept you uh, from being afraid as much as you would be otherwise. And so he's saying that God, the Lord is telling him, Satan can only go so far. I'm going to let him go so far and no further. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul said, and remember, Paul knew about suffering, and Paul was martyred for the faith. He says, for this light, momentary affliction. I don't know, if I went through half of what Paul did, I don't think I would call it light or momentary, but he says, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, the imprisonment and tribulation that was happening to them was in order to test them. It was to test them. It was to test the genuineness of their faith. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6-7, Peter writes, In this, that's your salvation, in this you rejoice. They rejoiced in their salvation in Christ, which we all should. And then he says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Light momentary affliction for a little while, Paul and Peter both say. And again, both of them were martyred for the faith. Paul was beheaded in Rome in the mid-60s of the first century under Nero, and Peter, the apostle Peter, was crucified upside down uh, for the name of of Christ. Uh, This proving of your faith is for God's glory. First and foremost, it is for our good. It is for a testimony of the truth of the gospel. And so when your faith is tested by these trials, even by persecution, uh, we can rejoice. God is working through it. The last form of persecution and affliction that Jesus mentions to them is death. In verse 10, he says to them and and to his church everywhere, Be faithful unto what? Death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's for good reason that the English word martyr, you might know, uh, which refers to someone who has died, laid down his or her life for the faith. The word martyr comes from the Greek word for bearing witness. Those two things were so closely identified with each other that we took the word for witness and made it mean, additionally, someone who died for the faith, died for the name of Christ. The martyrs are those who have sealed their testimony of faith in Christ with their blood. There's no more powerful testimony than that. Who would die for something like that if it was, if it was fake, if it were not true? There's, there's good reason that someone years, you know, centuries ago said that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the, is the, seed of the church. It's like when the blood hits the ground, more Christians pop up. God uses it to spread his gospel and his church. That's true in the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. The spread of the church happened through persecution and still does in many ways today. Well, that brings us to the third thing in our text, and that's the consolation of Christ. We've seen that, that Christ calls his suffering church to fear not and be faithful unto death. And he also offers us abundant comfort and consolation in the midst of all that. Now, in a way, he kind of does it at the beginning and at the end, right? He points them to himself, his own divine nature and his death and resurrection. Uh, But he also promises them the crown of life uh, to the one who is faithful unto death. What does that mean? Why does he promise? How is that an encouragement to a suffering church? It's meant to encourage God's afflicted people to endure and persevere even unto death. And how does it do that? It's meant to show... Uh, God's people that no matter what happens to you, even if you're martyred and put to death for not forsaking the name of Christ, uh, that you actually conquer and overcome those same enemies of Christ even when you die for the sake of his name. You would normally think the one who died is the one who loses, right? I can't quote it literally, but I remember General Patton said, uh, you don't win a war by laying down your life for your country. You win the war by making that other so-and-so, laid down his life for his, right? Well, Jesus, Jesus' army doesn't work that way. Even when they kill you, they can't kill you. Even when they kill you, you win over them. You have victory over, over them. That's why in verse 11, look what it says there at the end of our text. He who has an ear, you know, pay attention, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what does the Spirit say to the churches? Here it is. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Even the ones who died for Christ's name conquer. We conquer by our faith in Christ who conquered death and hell for us on the cross and in his own resurrection from the dead on the third day. And in him, even if we suffer, if you read Romans chapter 8, Paul says, even if we suffer, quote, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, verse 35, 
even if we are, verse 36, treated like sheep to be slaughtered. There's an unglamorizing picture of the church. Sheep to be slaughtered. And what does he say in verse 37? Even, even if all that happens, even if God's church, and she is very often treated like sheep to be slaughtered, in not, not despite these things, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. You can't, we conquer not by getting out of those things. We, even in those things, we're, the, you could translate the word, it would sound odd. Super conquerors. He, he puts a, a, a prefix on the word for conquerors that makes it it's like super, it's, the, our translations say more than conquerors. I don't know what a more than conqueror is, but it's what you are, even if you die for the name of Christ. 1 John 5, 4, our closing hymn is, is taken from partly from this verse. It says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith in Christ is our victory over the world. And so if you are in Christ, you cannot be harmed by the second death. What's the second death? Revelation 20.14 says the second death is, quote, the lake of fire. The second death is hell, being cut off from God, destroyed away from the presence of God forever. Those who are in Christ by faith, uh, I pray that is, is all of you this morning. If you're in Christ by faith, you never have to worry about the second death. You never have to worry about hell. Everyone in this life dies the first death. Unless, unless Christ comes back in our day, all of us will one day die. Everyone that is alive is, is born once and dies at least once. But if you're in Christ, you have been born again. And as a saying, you may have heard this or said this before, if you're born twice, that is, you're born again, you only die how many times? Once. Born twice, you die once. If you're only born once, you die twice. You die physical death, and then you spend an eternity in hell for your sin against the holy God. Jesus says if you conquer, if you, if you have faith in Christ, the second death can't touch you. You have nothing to fear from that second death. In fact, uh, if you're a believer in Christ, what does death do? Ushers you into the presence of your Savior. If you're a believer in Christ, if you are, you know that, that the second death cannot touch you. Do you know without a doubt this morning? We talked about, about justification earlier in the service. Without a doubt, do you know that your sins have been forgiven by a holy God through Christ's death on the cross in your place? Do you stand before him justified by faith in Christ, having your sins forgiven? And do you know that you've been accepted by God as righteous in his sight because of the spotless righteousness of Christ put to your account by faith? If you're a Christian, if, you're, if you have faith in Christ this morning, what does justification mean? It means you are as accepted by a holy God as Jesus is. Because you're accepted in him. It's his righteousness that gets you in the door of heaven, so to speak, of being right with God. If you are not a believer in Christ, whether you be sitting here for a long time, for years and years, turn from your sin, turn back to God through faith in Jesus Christ, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from your sins, and you can know that the second death can never touch you. If you're in Christ, you need not ever fear that second death. And again, all that physical death can possibly do to you, no matter what form it takes, is usher you into the presence of Christ forever. No wonder you're, you're more than a conqueror through faith in Christ. May we be faithful unto Christ, whether our tribulations be big or small, knowing that our only comfort in life or in death is that we are not our own. And I'll quote the rest of Heidelberg Catechism, question one, to close this morning, what is your only comfort in life and, or in death? Even in martyrdom, 
It said, I am not my own, uh, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let's let's pray. Lord, we we give you praise this morning again for your word. Uh, We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world in many parts of this world that even today suffer all these things that you wrote of and you spoke of here to the church in Smyrna, that many throughout this world suffer poverty and slander or blasphemy. Many of them suffer imprisonment for the name of Christ, and many even lay down their lives and seal their testimony with their blood. We know that one day you will make all of that right. We pray for them, those who are suffering these things even now. Even if we aren't, we pray for those who are, that you would give them grace, uh, sustain them by your spirit, strengthen their faith, give them grace uh, to fight the good fight and to confess Christ and conquer over their enemies, even if it's through death. Sustain your people, sustain us as well. Lord, we pray that you would uh, make us willing and able by your spirit to to endure whatever comes our way for the name of Christ. May we not suffer as those who do evil, but if we should suffer for the name of Christ, uh, give us grace to be able to endure it, to fear not, and to endure even unto death for the name of Christ, who died for us and rose again to conquer death and for our justification. Lord, we pray for anybody who's here that does not yet possibly know you, that you might open their eyes even today and give them, grant to them repentance and faith in Christ that they might look to him and have life, and know the joy of having their sins all forgiven and and the joy of being accepted by you as righteous in your sight because of the righteousness of Christ accounted to them through faith. Thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for the hope of eternal life and taking away all the fear uh, of death that we need not fear it any longer because of Christ who died in our place and rose again for our justification. For it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen.